This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, hello everyone. It is That Weems Guy back for yet another episode. I'm sorry we were off last week, but we had a very unfortunate circumstance. My agency lost a deputy and uh, I was out of town training as well and all that coming together just uh, made it impossible or well, not necessarily impossible but just I didn't have the mental and emotional energy to put together an episode last week. Um, I would like to thank the deputies from surrounding counties who came to help help us cover our county uh, so that all of our guys could be at the services and um, I know one of those guys listens to the show so if you hear this episode thank you. And um, let's move on to something much more pleasant. Joining us tonight, Shane Gosso. How y'all doing? Shane, if you would introduce yourself to everyone. My name is Shane Gosso. Um, I'm a friend of Lee Wings. And uh, I've been a peace officer in Georgia for a good long time. And I've been doing training for a lot longer than that. All right. Uh, we did a previous episode. I don't remember what number it was, but it was probably a year or so ago. Yes, sir, probably. And in that episode, you just asked your lengthy connection with Jeff Cooper and his family. <laughs> uh, remember, this is also audio as well. Shane was pointing yeah. to a picture of Colonel Cooper behind him in the picture. All right. Um, what we're going to kind of do tonight is kind of go through Shane's 30-year journey of training and uh, he's going to mostly lead the way tonight uh, maybe pop in with some questions and he's just going to kind of roll through and talk about various instructors and classes he's attended and give some historical perspective from his view and with that take her away Shane. Yes sir um last episode we talked about my first training actually started when I was pretty young with a friend of my father's it was a green beret that got me interested in training. Uh, from there, it led me to Jeff Cooper, uh, his writings and so on and so forth. And so my first formalized class was with Jeff Cooper. So we could, I guess, say that in the beginning, there was Jeff Cooper and it was good. And from there, I had a pretty eclectic uh, training journey. And so I went and got most of the certificates I could find with the caveat that I probably lost some. Some classes may not have had a issued them or some of them might have been emailed and I just didn't print them off and they're in my email folder somewhere. So to the best of my ability with actual documentation, uh, I pull certificates and kind of go through those. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I've got some artifacts and whatnot that um, have progressed over time. But in the beginning, there was uh, Jeff Cooper and that was when he was not at Gunsight um, and he was teaching a pistol and a rifle course under the old API doctrine. So that was back in the mid nineties and that's where it started off. From there, I had wanted to learn shotgun and he told me to go see Louis Arbuck. 
So in 1998, took a shotgun class from Louis Arbuck, who was also one of Jeff Cooper's instructors. Um, and he continued to be an instructor at Gunsight up until the time of his death, I believe. And I've got some letters as well going back and forth between the Colonel and I, and they talk about Louis. But one of Louis's gifts was he was a diagnostics coach. He could look up and down the line and tell the person what they were doing wrong and more importantly, how to correct it. And he, uh, I think in the last episode, we discussed Randy King was a protege of his and Randy's kind of carried on Louis's legacy. And that's one of the things I want to touch on in the interview was if you, you've got an instructor that you want to train with, go do it, find a way to do it because at some point they're not going to be around. Uh, a lot of the guys that we're going to talk about today are the giants that the rest of the training industry, as Wayne Dobbs says, stands on their shoulders. And we've got a chance right now uh, in the golden age of training to go and get that experience from these people before they're gone. Uh, a lot of them leave us way too soon. Um, so I'll kind of get off my emotional trip on that and continue down the lane. Uh, from there, of course, I went through what everybody probably has a certificate, uh, Glock Armors certification. <laughs> and I probably got 15 or 20 of those. I don't know that it's changed much over all the classes I've taken. They're a good gun. And uh, it's kind of like the Maytag Repairman. But that was one of the first uh, non-shooting classes, so to speak, that I took. And I thought that was important to learn how to work on a gun that you may carry so you could support it yourself, sort of like getting training in shooting or training in first aid. Uh, if the factory offers that to the person to be well-rounded, they can suffice and fix it themselves. It's not as complicated as the vehicle, uh, but it's a piece of life-saving equipment. And most of those armors courses don't take more than a day or two. Uh, and I know that Glock allows regular people, non-sworn uh, people into them, and SIG does, and a few others do as well. Um, 2000, it looks like, I took a combated pistol course that was put on by the Halo Group, and the chief instructor for that class was Gabe Suarez. Now, I do not know where my certificate from front sight is, but I'd met him and Mark Fleischman and Chuck Taylor at front sight, so this was in a time frame past the mid-90s into the early 2000s when those guys had kind of split up from front sight and went their own uh, way. But I took a two-day combative pistol course from him. And it was, uh, it was I wouldn't say completely different from what was taught at Gunsight, but it was a good bit different. There were more newer techniques being introduced into that one and uh, gave me kind of something to think about since pretty much all I had done was coming from Gunsight. Uh, Could you give an, give an example of that? So the whole idea of the Weaver stance had been kind of what he was teaching in that class had been more from a cross thumb to a thumb over thumb, but still with an isometric style tension. Um, Glocks were being touted at that time as a superior design to the 1911. Uh, Kydex holsters were coming into their own, uh, kind of morphing combatives into, or thinking about combatives or hand-to-hand -hand 
with the presentation of the pistol, what to do if somebody was on top of you. And that was addressed somewhat uh, in the API curriculum, but it became more blended and in depth than the uh, Halo class that I went to. Um, also, the introduction of instead of a standard response of two rounds and coming to a guard position to hold in case you have to make a headshot, um, moving straight toward the head, which I believe that actual idea came from Le uh, Larry Mudgett and John Helms yes. uh, from LA, uh, where they saw that on the street, thus the name of the failure drill. And I believe that's where um, the Halo group had gotten that from because most of the guys from that group were. Um, so from there, a bunch of Georgia peace uh talks. Let's stop right there. There's two things we need to elaborate in on from that. Number one, the weaver stance. The weaver stance is not what is commonly believed to be weaver. It now, is not. The, the, the whole lock, strong arm, bent, support arm, bladed stance. Jack Weaver did not shoot from that stance. The key was bringing both hands on the gun and bringing it to a level. And then Colonel Cooper introduced the whole concept of isometric tension and called that weaver. Correct. It was it was later that people integrated the whole bladed stance as like an interview stance and incorporating uh, shooting with that, and they have called that Weaver, even though that's not what Weaver or Cooper did, and uh, that has led to lots and lots of uh, misunderstanding uh, doctrines being written, in which Weaver was not properly explained in a doctrine when they were trying to get a counterpoint and um, as you you know uh two weeks ago we had a very spirited discussion with a mutual acquaintance a good friend of ours david knight on the weaver stance and um would you elaborate on the weaver for just a second well going back to that uh david called me and said do you know lee wings and i said yeah lee's my friend why well he's in class i know he is and he said, well, where, where'd the Weaver stance come from? And I said, Jack Weaver first shot in the leather slap competitions in Big Bear. And the first year he showed up uh, shooting with two hands, uh, not the first year he was there, but the first year he showed up shooting with two hands, nobody paid much attention to it. But the second year when he came back and cleaned everybody's clock, Jeff Cooper started taking notes. And so Jeff Cooper modified the way that Jack Weaver held the gun, isometric tension, so on and so forth. And that's what he taught. And I was looking for the letter and I left it in the other room, but I've got correspondence between the Colonel and another gentleman that was in the intelligence community, he's still alive and I'm, I'm not like to say his name, but the correspondence was back in the eighties, going back and forth. And in that letter that was dated 1980, it specifically states it was a discussion between him and this gentleman about isosceles and Weaver. And it started off, as you know, the Weaver is the first element of the modern technique. But the way he taught it, and I was actually watching, and I brought this up before, I believe, Pantio Productions, now Make Ready TV. Uh, if you subscribe to them, which I'm no way affiliated with, but if you subscribe to them and go to the gun site channel, 
and then go down and you have to search through the videos to find it. But there's seven or eight videos um, made by Rifle Works, which was a company that came in and filmed the Colonel teaching a group of Marines 250 pistol and a hybrid 223-270 rifle. Uh, so 250 pistol, general basic, and then 270 would be general rifle, bolt action, leopard gun, and 223 would be the AR-15 class. But in that particular video segment, you've got Jeff Cooper on video explaining the Weaver stance. And one of the things he used to say when you were getting ready to shoot is toe the line. And so if you toe the line, that basically means both toes are touching the line. If both toes are touching the line, how can you be bladed? The reason that the stance looks bladed is because of isometric tension. So if I'm square on and I am pulling back into my hand, it appears from the torso up, I'm bladed, but I'm actually not. Um, the bladed stance came in somewhere, I believe uh, you have discussed with other people on the East Coast uh, and got integrated in. And it's one of those deals where uh, it was invented here or this is the way it is because this is the way we said it was and the people may not have ever been out to gunsight or understand it um but the way jeff cooper taught the waiver and the way from what i understand gunsight teaches today they call it a balanced fighting stance um but it's not a bladed stance and David was under the impression because all of his training comes from the East Coast and he's a very highly skilled shooter and competitor and a very well-rounded instructor, but all of his training comes from over here and that's all he'd ever known. So it blew his mind that uh, the Weaver was not bladed and it blew his mind that in 1942, Sykes and Fairbairn were teaching in a Sosley style stance and in 1959, Eldon Carl was shooting, which is essentially the modern isosceles, yep. which goes back to show us nothing's new. None of this stuff is right. new. Yeah. And there's a picture in J. Henry Fitzgerald's book published in the 20s of a locked arm bent elbow shooting position long, long before Jack Weaver came into the picture. Um I know where David got that information from because it's in Bill Rogers's book. And I've heard Bill Rogers lecture where he basically denounces Weaver, but he's doing it from the standpoint of the whole bladed, locked arm, everything standpoint. And I was actually in the room with Ken Campbell, who was not the CEO at Gunsight at the time, but was a Gunsight instructor. And several other gunsight people, as Bill Rogers is trying to tell the gunsight people what gunsight teaches and what the Weaver is. It was kind of an interesting, like watching a tennis match back and forth. And finally, they are like, let's 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 all peacefully move on to the next topic. And you know, that's one of the things that, that that I think permeates the training communities that certain things get put in there and they get taken as gospel. And it's really not the way the people that originated the techniques intended them. Whatever, and it's, it's like that game where you start, you know, first person tells some so second person something and it goes all the way around the room and you see how many times it changes. And yeah, you know, from there, well, let's go into the discussion of what we now call the failure drill. You know, that originated at gunsight 
as the Mozambique, and as you said, it was two shots to center mass and then went back to a guard position, which we would more commonly today call it ready. And then there was an assessment phase. And if the person continued to be a threat at that point in time, you would take the headshot. Well, Larry Mudgett and John Helms were students at Gunsight, and they took that back to LAPD, changed the name to the failure drill, and took out the intermediate step. But there's still that assessment period, assessment phase between the two center mass shots and the transition to the head. I know that because Larry Mudgett told me that. <laughs> it's not something that I'm getting from a book or, or whatever. And it's, when we start getting away from the primary sources, things just change. I'll throw it back to you for that. No, you're fine. Um, Peace Officer Standards and Training Council, that's mm -hmm. for non-cops. That's the organization that certifies mm -hmm. and oversees police certification. So mm -hmm. there's a bunch of those in there, and I'm not going to touch on all of those because there are a bunch of them that have nothing to do with the regular person or even the police officer defending themselves or the history. Mm -hmm. It's kind of just mandated courses you got to take. Um, from there, I went uh, in 2000 again to the SIG Academy. Um, SIG is one of the only, Smith & Wesson had their academy, but SIG's has been in operation for a long, long time. And they actually have a, a very, very solid training program. Uh, and they have for quite some time. And they teach some just enormous number of courses on everything you could think of. But what I took from them was the classic armorers course and advanced pistol tactics. Now, that was taught by Bank Miller. Uh, Bank Miller's a name that m most people outside of law enforcement of a certain age won't have ever heard of. But Bank Miller was a very influential instructor. He was a federal agent. Uh, he was in charge of, I believe, the DEA's training program at one time. And he's a wealth of information and knowledge, but um, you didn't have to take, and you still don't have to take a SIG to a SIG Academy class. Uh, I went through it with a 1911 uh, Novak Custom that I've got sitting over here next to me, and I'll, I'll show you that in a little bit. But in the middle of that course, the locking lugs on that 1911 severed and locked the gun up. So I switched to a SIG 220 to complete the course, which gave Bank no end of delight uh, that the uh, Springfield broke and had to finish it with a SIG. Uh, I don't know if he's still teaching or not. He used to teach uh, and come up and do stuff for the Georgia Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors up until maybe five or eight years ago. Um, but he was one of those names that I was fortunate to train with that not many people had, had known or heard about. I will yeah. second that because when he came to one of the Galefi conferences to teach, I saw his name on the schedule and didn't know who he was. Know who he was. Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've got a lot of gems in the training community uh, like that. John Hearn being one of them. <laughs> uh, well played, nicely played, sir. Um, but from there, I went to Insights Training Center. And Insights was run primarily by two people, Greg Hamilton and John Holsham. Uh, I don't know if Mr. Hamilton's still doing any training or not. I know Mr. Holsham is, and I know that he has, and I just mispronounced his name and I apologize, but uh, I know John's been a guest on your podcast before. Uh, he is a hidden gem of the training community. Mm -hmm. um, 
he can teach just about anything. And I told him about a decade ago that I had wished I'd paid more attention to what he was teaching when I first went and trained with him. Um, they were teaching the isosceles stance. They were teaching the nine millimeter um, lifestyle, so to speak, which was completely different. And I know that sounds strange unless you're really into the the training community, but, uh, and we're there at the, the transition time, but it was a completely different way of looking at things. You know, they had, they had basically a incredible package for anyone from the armed citizen to the frontline police officer to somebody in military special operations and their technique or their techniques and tactics had been proven uh a lot by john and greg both of them themselves over and over and uh i wished i had have listened to to them a lot more than i did uh at the time because at the time i was uh if it didn't come from gunsight jeff cooper it wasn't valid you know so but i wanted to see what else was out there and i wish i had have given it a little bit more of a try than i did at the time um, so, but they taught two, two gun or two classes that I went to back to back, uh, looks like the first one was on October the 12th in 2001. That was defensive folding knife. And they have a very, uh, I hesitate to say bulletproof program, but they have a very solid program, uh, for the regular person or the police officer, or anyone using a defensive folding knife. Uh, no frills, no gimmicks, very easy to teach, very easy to retain, and very easy to use under stress, and it's been proven multiple times. And then I took their intensive handgun skills course. Um, so that was more akin to what at the time would have been termed surgical speed shooting that I think Andy Stanford coined the terminology, but it's more along the lines of what he taught or wrote about his book on stance and uh, manipulations of weapons and so on and so forth. And I did go back and train with insights again uh, later on, but uh, John still teaching is one that I would I would pay good money for to go learn from while he's still teaching. I think he's probably got a good long time left in him uh but i'd still get out there to uh train with him if i could and i know that he uh he travels around the country uh some point from there i met a gentleman by the name of mario martinez uh who most people outside of the special operations world have never heard of uh, mario passed away uh many years ago now but he was military intelligence and he was uh, the commander of the Hillsborough County, Florida SWAT team. And Mario was Mr. SWAT. Um, he, uh, he lived and breathed special operations and he was one of the best I'd ever seen at it. So I went and took a tactical submachine gun instructor course from him in January of 2002. And at the break on lunch, he asked me to stay there. And we talked for a little bit and he had me do a little bit of shooting. And he asked me if I'd like to teach for him. 
And so for a, for a while, I taught uh, firearms for him. He handled the tactics and everything else, and I kind of helped coach on firearms and did certain certain things with firearms for him. Uh, from there, I took a edged weapons course with him. Some more uh, training on explosives, booby traps, and bomb threat management and drugs in America. So, uh, April 2002, uh, went back to actual gun site, the gun site academy, and I took the 270 general rifle. And that was when we talked about, when we talked about Jeff Cooper, where I broke the sling swivels to the prototype scout rifle and where I messed up his Blazer 93. Um, right after, it was April of 2002, then in October of 2002, went back and I took my first uh, basic SWAT course from HRT training in Mario. From there, it gets a little weird. Uh, there was a time in Georgia that the Post Council certified demonologists and occult investigators. And they didn't run that program for very long, but it was uh, basically how to investigate crimes, tell if they were occult related and all the different religious sects and so on and so forth. Uh, but the title of the course was the Occult and the Law Enforcement Officer. And I don't know how well you can see this, but it does have the Archangel Michael piercing the dragon's throat. And so Post actually did certify demonologists and occult investigators at one time. Now, if you go to my record and try to pull that up, you can find the date and the time, but it has no description of the course anymore. Uh, that was of course after the new system came up and whatnot, but there are a lot of classes that I took that were kind of strange classes that are no longer, the, the hours are there, but the description's gone. Um, that was very what what he's talking about there, folks, is that it, it, I forget what year it was. Post adopted what it calls the data gateway, and there was lots of information and training and people's training records that did not make it into the data gateway. Uh, I know people who have certifications, uh, advanced certifications. They have the printed copies of them, but they don't show up on their their post records. Uh, when my training records got entered post incorrectly put the year that I started in and made numerous attempts to try to get that year corrected and I said, oh well it's no big deal and so I stopped trying to get it corrected until years later uh, they updated the system that it automatically suspended someone's certification if they didn't get all their training in a year the required training and post started to mess with my record because I didn't get the training for the year that I did not work in post that I was not even a cop and so at that point I got someone's attention well actually I'll back up they issued me a ghost 20 hours of training credit for the year that I never attended rather than fixing it and then later I got it changed and got it corrected but it took me for forever to get that done and so it doesn't surprise me that there's stuff missing from your records from there, I took police intelligence, and I don't know what happened. I have no in, uh, no explanation for the lacking intelligence um, on my part. So then moving into 2003, back with uh, HRT training, uh, did hostage rescue. Uh, and I did a bunch of SWAT and hostage rescue schools over and over and over. 
So I've got some, some missing certificates on those. Critical deployment for patrol, again, with high-risk training corporation, another submachine gun instructor uh, with high-risk training corporation, uh, tactical training, uh, which was uh, basically the tactical training thing was a, uh, was a course that was done in collaboration with the Alabama Tactical Officers Association. And it was basically critical deployment for patrol or active shooter, you know, response to the active shooter, because that's what it used to be called. Uh, it's changed names and tactics so many times over the last quarter of a century. Uh, teaching the, were they teaching the diamond formations and the five-man yeah. teams and all that stuff? Yeah, that was, that, was, that was one of the first iterations of it, and that's what they were training at the time, yes, sir. Um, Glock Armors course, Glock Instructor Workshop, back with HRT training again for advanced low light firearms, uh, then off to gun site for several months in a row. Uh, starting in April of 2004 and going through May, uh, did uh, general rifle, did 350 intermediate defensive pistol, uh, received an award from Pat Rogers for award an award for inspiring patience and serendipity. <laughs> I don't think too many of those are out there. You can imagine what I did to get that. Um, took a uh, .499 advanced offensive pistol, carbine tactical, well, basic carbine, advanced carbine, and then tactical, uh, carbine tactical problems. I know you'd asked before who the instructors were uh, out there, and I can read some of the names uh, on the certificate. It looks like uh, at the time, Colonel Young was the president of Gunsight. Of course, Buzz Mills owned it, uh, but uh, Colonel Young was running it. It looks like the range master for the... Uh, General Rifle may have been Ed Head. Uh, Randy Kane was one of the instructors in that one. Uh, for uh, 350 Intermediate, um, which is unique, um, I guess Mr. Mills wasn't on site at the time because, and when I say he was on vacation or had taken a trip or something like that because uh, Colonel Young signed the certificate on April 30th, and then the next class was, well, that was before that one, 16 April was when I took the, uh, I got my certificates all out of whack, 16th April was when I took the 350, and Buzz Mill signed as president, and Pat Rogers was the range master, and then for advanced uh, pistol, Looks like Ed Head was the range master, and it looks like Randy Kane signed that as well as Pete Wright. And then for basic carbine, Giles Stock was the range master. And then for advanced carbine, Pat Rogers was the range master. And it looks range master as well for carbine tactical problems. Uh, but the the main signature with uh, 
president on it fluctuates between um, Owen Mills and uh, R. Young. So I guess it had to do with whoever was there at the time uh, because Buzz owned the place and um, Colonel Young was the operations manager for lack of a better word uh, back then. From there, I've got a certificate of appreciation for training the Fulton County SWAT team with our mutual friend, uh, Richard McLaren, uh, signed off on that one. So I had left Gunsight and gone and done some training for them. And here's one you probably haven't heard me talk about or see, but I can talk about the center axis relock because I actually have an instructor certificate for it. Um, I don't know how many, I spent 40 hours of that course. I actually went to West Virginia, Moundsville, the National Corrections and Law Enforcement Training and Technology Center. Uh, it was an old prison. And uh, so I went and actually took the center access relock uh, course. And that goes into the advice I got a long time ago about go train, Louis Arbuck actually gave it to me, train with as many people as you possibly can even if you find out it's not something you could use. Um, that advice applied to me because I had the time and the means, whether through um, personal or work-related uh, funds, I could go all over the place and do training. Uh, I've got a little bit different advice for uh, people that I'll get into toward the end of it to culminate over all of this stuff. But uh, let's hold up there for a second. As you are, and that Williams guy recognized the expert on the center actor Freelock, perhaps the only one affiliated with the show. Tell us about it. You know. So the man that came up with it uh, has has passed away. Uh, he's he passed away a long time ago. Uh, he was a constable in the United Kingdom, uh, I think in Kent. Uh, I know a good number of people that met him, knew him in his job over in the UK, as well as his dealings in the United States and everything else. Um, I was not a fan of the man. Um, he, he did some things that uh, I disagreed with. Um, he believed in his system and he's got a lot of still to this day, very ardent supporters. Mm -hmm. uh, but the system was according to him, intuitive, but it's counterintuitive to people like you and myself. So basically what the system was, was a sideways uh, type system. So this is just a grip module. So as we talked before, if the weaver were square on and I've got isometric tension, it looks like I'm bladed, but I'm not. And if we're shooting an isosceles, it's straight on, but with the center axis relock, it was a bladed stance. So this was one of the positions 
and it basically used your elbow or line of your elbow to engage the target. So it was sort of a not point shooting, but an index type shooting deal. So from here, he would train you to draw and engage the target at close range. And if you want to make a headshot, he'd simply rock up using the line of the elbow in line with the muzzle of the firearm to make the headshot. If you had enough room, he would teach you to bring the gun up like this. So if you look, it's got very close to your face. Um, for, for, for our audio only audience, he was, when he said turned, he was basically perpendicular to the camera. So be standing basically at a 90 degrees angle to you if you were facing him. So he put the, uh, the gun, if you're a right-handed shooter, it would put the gun in front of your left eye, okay? Now, when you go and do this on the range, you think you're going to hit yourself in the nose with it. You don't. There's actually, for some reason, less perceived recoil. Um, by turning and putting your left eye, even if you're right-handed, right-eye dominant, by putting your left eye uh, in front of the gun that close to it with the back of the slide much closer to your face than you normally would in Weaver or Isosceles, it allowed you to get a clear front sight picture. Um, and there's an optical reason for that, and I'm not sure what it is. But the further you got out away from the target, uh, there was another position called apogee. And uh, that basically went, and I'm sorry for the from a 90 degree to the target to a more 45 bladed stance, like most people mistakenly call Weaver. And it extends the gun out into an almost Weaver bladed position. Um, there were some other, there's a lot of other stuff that went along with it, but he talked uh, carbine, submachine gun, shotgun, and pistol almost the entire same way. And I don't have a, a prop here to use for a shotgun or a carbine. Um, but there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of things in the system that I I, I was not a fan of, and there were a lot of other things surrounding that, that that made me hesitate with it as well as he published a book and can't get it um, online it doesn't exist anywhere uh, other than the the actual printed out copies but he he called or he entitled the book hit or myth which is the same title as Louis Arbuck's book which kind of really uh, got me upset um, and I wasn't a fan of that and a few other things and I had uh, walked into his office during the class and there's a picture of him shooting an HKP 7M13 because he did shoot Ipsic over in the UK, but he was shooting a P7M13, might've been an M8, uh, from a very stylized hard weaver. I pointed at it and I asked him, um, what, uh, what's the deal with that? And he looked at me and said, no, you're enemy. And I'm just kind of staring at it. So I never kind of figured out what his deal was. A lot of people, like I said, still like him. Um, as an individual person, I'm sure he was okay. Um, but I was not a fan whatsoever 
of any of the training mythology that he put forth and um, I, I think a lot of it is uh, is dangerous and if someone wants to use it, they're using it at their own peril uh, because I, I don't agree with much of it. Um, now, I wouldn't have known that or been able to say that with a conviction if I had not gone out and done the training. Um, but for a while back in that time frame, it was all over the Southeast. You know, that, that technique and training was all over the place. And he was a really good salesman. I'll give him that much. He was a very, very good salesman. Um, yeah, for, for regular viewers or listeners of the show, when Dave Spalding was on recently, we talked about a YouTube channel, which I will not provide the link to because I don't want to drive people to his channel. Uh, that gentleman was a very staunch advocate of the center active free lock. And as I am not an expert on the system, as are you, I do not feel qualified to, to discuss it. Well, I'll, I'll come up and give you a private class on any time you want. Um, <laughs> so I, I still remember most of it well. Uh, but there I went back to, uh, to Mario again with HRT and did... Uh, instinctive reactive shooting, uh, which was basically his static target version of Rogers uh, without the steel, without the moving and so on and so forth. Uh, from there, took another critical deployment, first responder to an active shooter. And uh, so we kind of, you know, have gone out of fantasy land back into reality a little bit and then got a uh, hard smacking dose of, of true reality from one of the few remaining master gunfighters of our times, Uncle Scotty, uh, Scott Reitz from International Tactical Training Seminars. So I took an advanced handgun course from him. And then it looks like the next weekend, I took an advanced carbine course from him. And then it looks like about a month later, those were both hosted in Atlanta. Uh, looks like about a month later, I went out to L.A. and trained in a closed class on vehicle stops and assaults with him and some elements from his old agency. Uh, he's still teaching. He's got a book out. Um, I'd recommend the book and I'd recommend getting I don't think he travels anymore. But if someone wants to go behind enemy lines to California or they have a reason to be there, I'd highly recommend training with Scott Reitz or ITTS. Um, he um, he was in the he was the young guy with with Mudgeon Helms. Um, he was the last of that era of the SWAT cops from D Platoon from the old days, and he was in I, I think six uh, in policy shootings. He's a subject matter expert on the use of force, and every Scott Reitz teaches is based in reality. Um, and it's court defensible and it's legal and it's ethical. Um, no frills, just uh, it's very heavily reliant on the modern technique with his twist or his tweaks to training other hat. Um, from there, I took a uh, unarmed self-defense course of instruction with David Blinder. Uh, who used to be a trainer and brought people 
Ian as well. He was a host up in the Atlanta area. Oh. And he had uh, a good, good bit of a very good training. Took an unarmed self-defense course from him and a lot more post-training and a lot more post-training. And then in um, 2006, I took a class from Randy Kane um, of Cumberland Tactics. It's Tactical Handgun 101. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Blinder brought him in for that one as well. Uh, but that was the first time I trained with uh, Randy since he, since I had met him at Gunsight. So, but that was a tactical handgun 101 course. He's one of the ones that, like I said last time, I'd highly recommend uh, people go and train with um, before he decides to retire from the business. Um, if you'd heard about Louis Arbuck and always wish you'd had a chance to do it, um, the closest thing you can do to go get that training is to see Randy Kane. And that's nothing taken away from the man as his own instructor. Um, he's absolutely brilliant and self-sufficient on his own uh, with his abilities and every other bit of knowledge he can impart. But um, that's as close as you're going to get to Louie. Uh, and he will do things in his class that um, most will make you think. It's, it's not the standard just shooting class. Um, from there, I met Ken Hackathorn and took advanced tactical pistol with him. And he's one that I'm glad I was able to train with before he retired because he's no longer teaching. Um, 08, I met uh, Tom Gibbons and Craig Douglas and Ed Lovett uh, at Rangemaster for a course called Full Spectrum Self-Defense. Tom taught pistol, Ed taught uh, snub nose revolver and counter surveillance, and Craig taught uh, managing unknown contacts and probably something else. Now, there have been a handful of shipworks classes I've been to. Um, if I remember correctly, Craig doesn't give certificates out. Um, so, but I've been through ECQC, uh, arm movement and structures and edged weapon overview. And I know I've been to ECQC and, uh, AMIS, arm movement and structures. I've been to those more than once. Edged weapons, I think I only did one time, but that was the first time I'd met Tom Gibbons. Uh, from there, trained again in 08 with uh, John Holson again uh, while he was still with Insights, and that was a 27-hour course on street and vehicle tactics. Um, so that was a that was a unique course as well that took kind of the square range and built off of that. Uh, included simunitions, included scenarios. I want to say that we took a field trip in that class to the mall to watch human behavior, predatory behavior, people that weren't uh, paying attention to their surroundings, people getting in and out of their cars. This is what this looks like. This is how you avoid looking like this, so on and so forth. Uh, not one of your standard uh, firearms classes that most people go to. Um, kind of one like... Uh, Murphy's Eat Your Vegetables, you know, providing something mm -hmm. that you need, but you may not like. Um, crime scene technician, block armor again. Uh, then up into 2010, uh, back with Hackathorn, 
to take advanced tactical carbine. Um, so I was able to take both the advanced pistol and the advanced carbine from Ken Hackthorn. And if you'll remind me, I'll look for my notes uh, because I still remember having the notes from the tactical carbine class and I'll email those to you. Uh, I think it's like eight pages worth. Um, from there, um, there is a lot of missing certificates on this one as well. You'll hear them pop up, but it's by no means the amount of training I received. Uh, but there's a man by the name of Dennis Martin. Uh, Dennis Martin is a British citizen, and he is the owner of a company called CQB Services. Uh, he is one of, if not the best, combatives instructors in the world. Um, primarily focusing in World War II combatives. Um, he did a lot of executive protection for several royal families. Um, did that for a very long time. Uh, he worked the door at some of the rougher clubs in Liverpool, England as a doorman, not a bouncer, but an actual doorman at some very, very rough clubs. And uh, he's employed some big names or been associated with some big names. Back in the 80s, when he was being brought over into the United States, uh, he was teamed up with Evan Marshall from Detroit PD. He was teamed up with Ed Lovett. He was teamed up with a handful of other guys. And uh, so Dennis has a book out called Working with Warriors. Uh, I think that's about the only book he has out there. Um, I used to bring him in um, to do training. And over the years, uh, we lost touch, which is probably my fault uh, because I disappear from time to time. But um, he was a true gentleman every time I dealt with him. Uh, he's very, very, very um, professional and very good at his teaching and what he did. Um, he's older now, obviously, but uh, I like his, his nickname of the old man, what will hurt you. Um, <laughs> you know, to watch him move with the speed and power that he can impart is, is very impressive. Um, he was acquainted as well with Nick Hughes. Nick Hughes is probably six foot eight at least. He's Australian. Uh, he was a hand-to-hand -hand instructor for the French Foreign Legion, uh, and he was also the primary head of protection for the rock band Warrant. Um, Nick came and taught at Leffy for me, um, but he is he's a legend in his own right. Uh, one of the things I do not have, uh, but how I met Dennis was from a man by the name of Marcus Wynn. Marcus Wynn does have a wealth of information available on him online. Uh, Marcus has passed away. Marcus was a very unique individual. He is the one that introduced the OODA loop into the tactical training community as a concept. Uh, he is the one that introduced neuro-linguistic programming into the training community, and he developed the advanced adult um, learning mythology. So it would take me an entire episode to try to explain that, but he can do in a matter of minutes with people using advanced learning principles, using neurolinguistic programming and, and a few other things that it would take hours for other people to do. Um, he was involved with a bunch of different 
federal agencies over the years. He was an air marshal. He was in the military. Uh, he worked for some lesser known federal agencies with some strange responsibilities. And he wrote a lot of blog posts and he wrote a lot of articles um, and he wrote some fiction and nonfiction books. Uh, I'm a character in one of his books, uh, believe it or not. So, uh, but Marcus was a very unique individual. Um, if you go down that rabbit have an open mind and dedicate a good portion of your time to reading on what he wrote about uh, and give it a chance. That one's actually, that one's actually got a lot of, a lot of knowledge that even if you take part of it and say, well, I don't want to do this, but I'll try this. That part that you take will actually help in teaching students and having them retain things. He, uh, he was very, influential behind the scenes of a lot of large programs. Um, someone else was going to say about Marcus, and unique character, and that's coming from me, so that's saying something. But he introduced me to, uh, to Dennis Martin. So there is a book by David Morrell, who is the father of Rambo. He wrote Rambo. That's what David Morrell is famous for. And he wrote a book, I want to say it was called The Protector. And while I was at Gunsight, I was out at Costco. And I saw a book that had an Emerson CQC7 on the front page. And I bought it just because it had an Emerson CQC7. And I flipped it open. And there was some guy that I think wrote a review um, or a blurb on the book that I'd read in magazine articles, the Guns magazine articles. That guy's name was Dave Spalding. Dave Spalding was a technical advisor for David Morrell for the book, The Protector. At the time, the main protagonist was carrying the exact same gun that Dave Spalding was writing about was his duty gun in a magazine article. Fast forward, and there was a sequel to The Protector called The Naked Edge. The Naked Edge was dedicated to two men. One was Marcus Wynn and the other was Dennis Martin. And if you know anything about Morrell, he went and researched all of his books, actually did it. So he did train with Dave Spaulding. He trained with uh, Brett McQueen at ITTS, uh, Scotty's wife. Um, he trained with Dennis Martin. He trained with Marcus Wynn. He went out and did all this research and actually trained. And so that's why some of his books have the, the real uh, close as you can get to it uh, on equipment and scenarios and so forth in them. But I had met Marcus, wanted to uh, meet uh, Dennis Martin, so I, I brought him over and he would teach uh, this first class looks like combative knife, essential hard skills, and current threat countermeasures and CQB applications. And that basically means knocking the mess out of somebody that's trying to hurt you, you know, mm -hmm. just uh, to, to bring it down. Um, into common language. Um, now, this is this is the first certificate I have, but it is not the first class I went through. Um, it's sometime around before, during that time frame, I met Super Dave Harrington. And the first class I ever took with Super Dave had three people in it. And it was in Mike Benedict, who has passed away. It was in his basement up in the mountains in Jasper, Georgia. And it was two days 
of 10 hour days of nothing but dry fire with Super Dave, which was an experience in and of itself. And so after that, I started bringing Dave in to do training and I've got one certificate from him uh, because I hosted it um, is why I don't have any other certificates, but I uh, brought him in several times and he always taught some form of tactical carbine or pistol fighting. Um, Super Dave still teaches. Super Dave is a force of nature. Uh, there is no other way to put it. Um, he is a very good instructor. Uh, he has a very intensive training program. Um, Pantio or Make Ready has several videos on him and I learned a lot from Dave over the years. So I was glad to have gone through and met him. Um, a lot of the tactics Dave teaches um, may not be applicable to the average citizen defending their home or themselves or the police officer, um, but he can teach to shoot and he can teach to, to inch that performance out. And so you can take some of the stuff that might apply to uh, military special operations that he teaches and garner stuff from it uh, to make yourself a better shooter. Um, from there, did combative pistol with, and then I took a class which uh, is we, lost, we lost we lost your audio for a second there. Who was that combative pistol class with? Oh, Tom Gibbons. That was okay. in October 2011. Wow. So that was the first full class I took from Tom Gibbons. Um, he came down and taught that. Um, then I did a class the FBI taught called Law Enforcement Officers Killed and Assaulted Street Survival. It was an eight-hour course review of the findings they have. The only way for the private citizen to get that information is if they look up Claude Werner, the tactical professor. Uh, Claude on his blog has a summary of events of Leoka. Um, so if you get a chance to read those, a lot of those can help you out, especially with mindset and so on and so forth. Um, more Glock training, um, field training officer back with, uh, CQB services. Uh, this was close quarter combat for VIP protection. Um, then there was neural based combatives. And some more post, a bunch more post. Then we have uh, Range Master, uh, three-day firearms instructor development and certification course. And I'm not going to show that because it has my scores on there. And I don't want you to know my scores. If you want to know my scores, you're going to have to call Tom and have him go through the files. So you probably beat me on two of them. Uh, probably. But yeah. But that was. <laughs> Uh, three-day firearms instructor development and certification course. Uh, if, if you haven't taken that course, they teach more in three days than a lot of government entities do in two weeks. Um, and I don't know if he still does, but he provides you with a, one of the most comprehensive manuals out yeah. there. And it actually made you get up and test your oration skills in the classroom, as well as your presentation skills and safety skills and line management on the range. It wasn't just a come shoot this drill and see how fast you can drill it. It was actually having you teach and having a seasoned master instructor evaluate your teaching. So I think that's a, a really good class to go through. 
Um, then I went through the advanced firearms instructor development and certification course with him. And then there's some more of Dennis Martin's CQB services. Um, this was a CQB instructor course program. And for the, for the audience that's familiar with POST, if you are an instructor from out of the state, or in this case, out of the country, um, there are certain ways that peace officers can get continuing education or training credits by taking your course. So I submitted Dennis's uh, CV and lesson plan outlines. And for whenever he was coming over, the director of post authorized him as a subject matter expert in 27 disciplines from everything from unarmed combatives to shooting to PR 24 baton, mm -hmm. you name it. Um, another, again, wonderful instructor that a lot of people haven't heard of uh, that had some wonderful, wonderful training. Um, some more post stuff. Then we've got Range Master again, did a uh, Range Master defensive shotgun course. That was back in 2013. Um, from there, uh, did some stuff with the Georgia Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors, stuff with uh, some Metro Atlanta agencies, some more stuff with Post, some more stuff with Galefi. Um, in 2014, uh, I did the Defense Training International Instructor Development Class with John Farnham. Uh, John is the oldest still in operation firearms instructor in the United States that I'm aware of. Um, he is a true warrior poet. Uh, you have to know him to understand that. But John has been around for a long time and he and his wife, Vicki, still teach. He has a handful of uh, books out and i would encourage anyone if they're on the fence go take a class from him now even if was it if, i said that that was the class you hosted down in, in sumter right that uh sparrow came to yes sir yeah i want to touch on that for just a second uh chain and our mutual acquaintance uh, clark sparrow shot a glock 34 in that class and there was one drill in which they had to basically drop their primary pistol and go to a backup pistol enough sand you know you understand the dirt south georgia is not dirt it's sand uh went into the lightning cut on that i think it was a gen 3 glot 34 and got into his recoil spring assembly that it completely locked up the gun uh, sparrow had to swap out you know the recoil spring assembly and had to act, did some other stuff i think to the gun to get it back running but i know he had to get any recoil spring assembly if you have holes cut into your slide, other than when the barrel protrudes and where the rounds are getting ejected, you are asking for trouble. You never know when you're going to drop something or something that's going to be knocked out of your hand. You never yep. know. Bill Rogers invented the modern Kydex holster when he walked across the street from the Hoover building in FBI while there was ice on the ground and he slipped and his Smith & Wesson mm -hmm. fell out of his leather holster. And he wanted something to hold it in place, which became the SNCC holster, which there was the sound it made when you put it in or pulled it out. Um, he didn't intend to have his gun come out of his holster. He didn't intend to slip on the ice. 
if someone of his caliber and training can slip on the ice, anybody can slip. Anybody's gun can come dislodged. So I'll agree with uh, Lee on that 100%. If you've got holes cut in your gun or other things like that, it's asking for trouble because you might not intend for it to happen, but it could. Um, a bunch more Galefi stuff. Randy, did you Chan have did you have anything else to say about Farnham before we moved on? No, if you um, if you have a chance, to train with him. Train with him. He's he's getting up in years. I don't think John is going to stop training until he physically can't. Um, but he's forgotten more about the art than um, than I think a lot of us put together will ever know. Um, I don't agree with everything he teaches, um, but I agree with most of it. And he has a solid basis for why he teaches what he teaches. And he's a prince. He's just, he's a, he's a great guy. Um, he was actually, when I, I went to the National Tactical Invitational. And when I got there, I knew who John Farnham was. And Skip Gokenauer, who ran the place, looked at me and he made some notes and he said, your partner is John Farnham. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, so he, that's when I met him was back in whatever year that was. But uh, he, he's been around a long time. He used to, he used to drive around the country in a Volkswagen bug with a shooting contraption called the Duatron. Uh, that was back in the seventies. So, and he would make sure, and I got this from one of the guys that was running a state police academy out West. Uh, but he said, John would always show up whenever it was lunchtime so that he could get a free meal in the instructor cafeteria. But he's been around for a long time. He's been around training and he's got a solid, solid doctrine uh, and a reason for why he does it. He's not scared to change his doctrine and he's not scared to change the equipment he recommends based off of what he sees. So he'd be one I'd, I'd go train with now if there's anything that you could get uh, close to you. Um, then I got a handgun three uh, from Randy at Cumberland. Randy uh, came from Cumberland Tactics. And then I've got a uh, street encounter and skills tactics from uh, John Murphy uh, that was done this year recently. Uh, my most important certificate, uh, the one from first person safety on trigger manipulation is actually bronze next to my Jeff Cooper certificate and it's behind glass, so I can't bring it out. Uh, but there's a bunch of uh, bunch of certificates I have that I just don't remember where they're at uh, or what what I've done with them. They're somewhere. Um, so having said all of that, before I take up too much more time and do a show and tell with with historical equipment, um, what I have learned from basically all of this is find an instructor that is reputable. Uh, that is well thought of across the industry. Now, everybody might not agree with them, but for the most part, they're well-respected or well-respected. Uh, Murphy, you, Tom Gibbons, Wayne Dobbs, Scotty Reitz, Gunsight, Thunder Ranch, SIG Academy, Masadi Oob, uh, anybody in, associated with Rangemaster, 
Um, and that's not, not, not an inclusive by any means list, but anyone that is established, that's been around, that's well-respected across the industry. If you go and you have an open mind and you learn from them and then you continue to practice what they teach you, um, you'll be set. You'll be way ahead of most people. Um, no problem with, with bouncing around and getting trained from as many people as, as you can afford time and money-wise. But if you have other responsibilities, if you've got a family, if you've got a job that doesn't allow you to go out and do that, do some research, pick someone that's well-respected, go train with them, and then practice, 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 practice. And then save up when you have more time, go train with someone else then. But you're not going to hurt yourself by getting a solid foundation and practicing that wow. over and over. I've got a, a friend named Lester. Lester um, went and trained at the American Pistol Institute for the first time in June of 1983. He then went to the 499 Advanced Pistol in August of 84. He went to the 599 Special Pistol in September of 85. And then he went to the 223 Rifle class in May of 92. Uh, Lester is the one that sent me the manual that I sent you the copy of. Mm -hmm. um, he has carried a Colt Combat Commander in a Milt Spark Summer Special since the first class at Gunsight. And if you look in that manual, there is a list of school drills on what Jeff Cooper said you should practice with. And you can find those on Carl Wren from, is it KR Training? Mm -hmm. You can yeah. find those historical notes on uh, Carl Wren's website. But Lester does his dry fire three to five times a week. And he does his live fire once or twice a week based off of what is in that manual. The man is older, obviously, uh, than a lot of people that come out and shoot some of the, the games. But when he comes out to shoot, he comes out with the same combat commander in the same holster doing the same thing he has done for 35, 40 years. And you can barely see him move from when the buzzer goes to the time he's on target is a flash. Um, he has just gone and gotten good, solid foundation, listened to what he was taught, and then repeated, 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 repeated over and over until it's become second nature. I would put him up against just about anybody else I, I know um, in a stressful situation. He's, he's, he paid attention to the, the lessons that he learned. Um, See if I can find this real quick. The silence is riveting podcast. Is it really? <laughs> yes, it is. We're we're uh, we're about done. I'm finding <laughs> if I can, and I may not be able to find it. I don't know. I found it on one page in here and I know I sent it to you, but it was in print where we found the combat triad. Yeah. 
So, but in this particular manual for the API General 50 250 student notebook, um, Jeff Cooper mentions the combat triad in it. And I have gone back and looked, and I can't find it anywhere else. It's on page three, chapter two. So, um, whether armed with pistol, shotgun, machine pistol, rifle, or machine gun, one is at a grave disadvantage without proper grounding and practical marksmanship, gun handling, and mindset. The combat triad, see diagram on the following page. Being a good marksman is important, but it is only part of the solution. In proper manipulation and management of the weapon under stress has got numerous good shots killed in the military, law enforcement, and the private sector. At the American Pistol Institute, however, proper gun handling is placed in its rightful place of importance. Other things being equal, mindset would appear to be the key to the entire subject of crisis management. Mental conditioning is covered in detail in the upcoming chapter, but if one isn't thinking right about personal armed combat and the techniques specifically developed for its management, one's survival lies more with a chance than with some perceived notion of competence. Competence is defined by one dictionary as having suitable skill, experience, etc., for some purpose. One wonders what the writers might include under etc., but we doubt luck would appear there. So, and then he shows a uh, diagram of the combat triad with marksmanship, gun handling, and mindset as the legs. So, marksmanship is at the top. And mindset and gun handling are the legs of the triangle or the triad. So, but that was where we found it in print at uh, show and tell moving through this so we can get our listeners back to whatever uh, else they need to do. We had talked about the Milt Sparks magazine pouch uh, before. Uh, since then, I've been able to pick up a few more. This is the double one in its pre cut configuration. And I was able to get the copy as well. So Milt Sparks no longer produces the Tango Down makes a version for the Glock. Um, and you can get those from Tango Down, same, same style, no basket weave. You can either get them in black or in FDE. And they come in the double configuration. You can just cut them straight down the middle. And on the back of them, it actually says adapted from the original design by Milt Sparks. These are genuine Milt Sparks Yaki slide holsters. This one um, is marked Milt Sparks Idaho City. Uh, it was made in the 80s at some point, and Leo Hathaway actually gave this to me. He ordered it, put it on, didn't like it, put it in the safe, and it sat there until a few years ago when he gave it to me. This is Jeff Cooper's Yaki slide that he gave to me. Uh, much newer one, uh, stamp TK for the owner at the time that made it. Uh, but that was Jeff Cooper's Yaki slide, one of several. Uh, this one was new in the package that he gave to me. Um, it's a unique holster. You'll never see another one like this. This is a 1AT. It is a complete custom Milt Sparks holster. It has Jeff Cooper's logo of the J, the C, and the pen is mightier than the sword. And on the very back of it, it is stamped um, with Tony's embossment. 
1911, the Milt Sparks name, and JC for Jeff Cooper. But that is a number one AT competition holster. That thing's blazingly fast, believe it or not. Uh, Galco had at one time a series of holsters they made for Gunsight and Boz with Gunsight Raven. And this was a straight drop holster. It's unique in that it is steel lined. So there's a piece of U-shaped steel across this. It's got what at the time in the 90s was revolutionary. That's a speed cut so that the gun could clear an extra half inch quicker. You um, mean that's not an optic cut? Oh, no, 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 no. There weren't, <laughs> well, there were <laughs> Nobody was I'm using it. Um, sorry, I couldn't help you. I couldn't resist. Oh, you're fine. Wilderson, Wilderness Tactical, Safe Packer, unique holster. The only person I've ever seen write about it is DB. Um, but I've had one of these for the first time I saw it at the pro shop. Um, this is the original 1911 that I learned to shoot from Jeff Cooper with. The only thing that's original on this gun is the slide, the frame, and the gun sight low mount thumb safety and then the grip safety uh everything else i've i've shot the bear i've shot three or four barrels out i've shot six sets of internals out i've worn off three finishes uh i've cracked the the slide twice uh it's got mmc sights so the sisters to the shotgun sights you've got mm -hmm. um but it's it's got a lot of a lot of history and a lot of wear on it and those are some jeff cooper um emblem hardwood stocks to go on it uh the optic cut as you called it just barely came down uh under the ejection port and the theory behind that when they made this holster was that when you got it up here yeah. and the muzzle got there you, you had a half inch quicker you could draw from but this was a stand, this was considered a gamer rig, you know, so this, this at the time was considered some high speed open wear uh, competition equipment. And um, you just, you can't conceal it real well, even with the safari vest, it's hard to conceal this because it sits away, but it's a really good training holster for people that are learning how to shoot. This, as far as quality gear goes, this is an original Kramer vertical belt scabbard out of uh, Horsehide that I bought in the mid 90s. It's the same holster that I originally was trained with. And I just used it in a competition on Saturday. It's still going from the mid 90s. Uh, when you buy quality gear and you take care of it, it lasts. For those of you that are listening to the audio podcast version of this, uh, there is a video version on YouTube that you will be able to watch, but also if you do the podcast version from Spotify, the video plays along with that. Then one of the last few things I have to show you is a Bianchi 50P Chapman Plus holster. So this was another high-speed competition holster from back in the day. And it had a custom tension welt on it so you could draw it. It is still lined as well. It's got a super low cut so that you could put an even larger optic on your gun from back in the 80s. <laughs> um, so, but it, it holds it at this angle. Now, whether you want it to be a cross draw or whether you want it 
gasp, new idea appendix. Um, but if you want to carry it up toward the right side of your belt buckle, if you're right-handed, you could carry it that way. And that's how most competitors did carry it in a quasi appendix condition or uh, position in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Uh, Bruce Nelson wrote about wearing the summer special in appendix back in mm -hmm. the 70s. So again, new concept, I know. But this is one you don't see every day and it's made by Bianchi and it was Ray Chapman's uh, holster. So um, going back to the gun, that is what the gun sight low mount thumb safety that I believe you and Robbie Barkman talked about. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the way that works is when your thumb is on the gun and you, you can keep your thumb on the safety and out of the way of the slide. A lot of people, when they're learning to shoot on 1911, ride their thumb high and it interferes with the slide. And this allows you to get a full grip on the gun and still have your thumb on top of the thumb safety where it properly should rest. So, but that is, uh, that is what the gun sight low mount thumb safety said, or is. If you look at the gun, that's honest wear on it. And that is a 20 plus year old uh, Robar Roguard slide and a NP3 finish on the frame. Um, you can see where I've worn through the MP3 finish on the grip safety. Um, the guns had a lot of rounds through it. I don't know if you can hear how much it rattles or you can see how much play there is in it, but the thing still works and works and works and works. So I will demonstrate the proper way to press check a 1911. So that's some old gun sight stuff. Uh, I, I'm envisioning when Brian Eastridge watches this episode and listens to it and he hears that rattle in the 1911, what, what this response is going to be. We'll find out. Uh, this is apparently your Milt Sparks magazine pouch because it's marked JW for your first <laughs> plan. Yep. Um, and a Lisi ankle rig, which was widely considered the finest ankle rigs ever made. Um, this one is for a Colt Detective Special and it was given to me by Tom Gibbons. So it's had some wear on it. Uh, I've worn it uh, from time to time myself and it's just a unique item because they'll never make another one. Uh, so if you find any of these vintage holsters on eBay, snap them up while you still can. Then the final I, I had a I had a little bit of interaction with him right before the end, and he just seemed like such a really nice man. He was. He's and there's some jewels in the training, or there's some jewels in the industry. He was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Walter Birdsong from Birdsong's Finishes in Mississippi was another. You'd call up and you'd get the owner of the company, whether it was Lou Alessi or Walter, and mm -hmm. they would talk to you for an hour. I mean, you, you'd have to try to get off the phone with them, but they'd do anything they could to help you. Um, so last thing is, um, I've talked about it before, but it is Hornady 230 grain, 45 caliber jacketed trunicated cone. These were Jeff Cooper's. He gave them to me. Um, but it is the bullet that he carried in his 45s. And for the audience that can see, that's why it's called a trunicated cone because it's not like a standard 
45 ball round. Uh, it has more of a profile of a 40 caliber Smith and Wesson round. It's got a flat point. Uh, it penetrates deeper and it also does not deflect off of hard barriers or deviate as much through windshields and so on and so forth, which is why he was a big fan of that particular round. Sadly, it's no longer made. Uh, Federal and Winchester have some flat point 45s, but they're not the same uh, projectile. Uh, I'm sure somewhere in some obscure gun stores, they still have that ammo or at least the bullets. Um, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure where you can get them. Otherwise, I haven't seen them in a long time. And this, this ammo is probably from the 80s or early 90s. Uh, so, but I still have one box of it that he gave me left. So, so would, that, would that classify as hardball? It would, yes, sir, because they all fall to hardball. Nice. Yes, sir. So, but hopefully that was a, a nice enough array of some of the stuff we talked about before since I'm back where I can get a hold of and not on, in a hotel right now. Um, but yeah, unique stuff. A lot of that stuff I showed is from at least the 80s um, and it's still 100% serviceable because it's quality, you know. So people that are getting into this um, training deal or self-defense by quality um, and e everything's going to have problems, but by quality, uh, something that's peer reviewed and recommended and it should last you a good long time and you won't have to buy it again and you won't have to be frustrated and you won't have to fight with your equipment. And the takeaway again from the training is find somebody that's uh, reputable, reliable and practice that and you'll be way ahead of most people. And I just had a gunshot outside my house. That was rather disconcerting. We'll, we'll continue unless I hear something else. Or, <laughs> or something starts crashing through the window. There is a six-foot privacy fence around my backyard, so they're not in my backyard because I can see out my window. I'm sure you've got a shotgun close by if they breach the door. Uh, maybe more than one. But um... And as I'm at my kitchen table... I can dispense with them when they do stuff. Um, waiver doesn't matter. Isosceles doesn't matter. Nine millimeter doesn't matter. 45 doesn't matter. Mindset matters above all. So uh, as long as you have decent equipment that's reliable and durable, you've got proper training, and then you've got your wits about you, what uh, I said before, and I stand by it, and I've got documentation on it. Jeff Cooper cared most about mindset. Um, you know, in the beginning, there was Jeff Cooper, and all was good. And we've gotten the information, misinformation, cowpath, or whatever the internet is, and mm -hmm. uh, all this other stuff. And anybody can publish anything now. And over the years, it's become distorted, but there's still, there's still good solid sources out there. And at the end of the day, as, as long as you check the right boxes, um, you're, you're pretty much good to go. So a lot of the stuff doesn't get matter. I wouldn't get bogged down into the semantics to some of this stuff. Uh, it all works as long as you work, you know. So, so. then a gun sight service pistol that is a Glock and 9mm will work for you. I'm sorry, I couldn't, there's a problem with, yes, it'd be fine. Um, you know, it's, um, the, the Glock is a reliable gun. 
the nine millimeter cartridge is okay if the shooter does their part. Uh, red dots, I can take them or leave them. I don't hate them. I don't like them. They are what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, they have their place. Um, not gonna go into the 10 hour discussion on, on those. I've got some guns without them. I've got some guns with them, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, uh, a G 45, uh, with a Hollison 509T, somebody could do worse uh, for a service yeah. pistol than that. Yeah. Uh, plus, it's got uh, the really cool Raven and a lanyard loop, which is highly important. And my my old 1911 doesn't even have a lanyard loop, so it's got one up on me. Yeah. I, folks, I couldn't help help uh, interject that. That was been a fun source of uh, conversation and needling between Mr. Ghost and I. Uh, he, he has a hard time accepting the the service pistol not being a 45 and 1911. I have a hard time accepting anything outside of the year 1986. But <laughs> I'll gradually admit, um, you know, there are things change and uh, you either mm-hmm. you either change with them and learn to adapt or you get left behind and become irrelevant. Um in the words of wisdom of my friend Super Dave, uh, in gunfighting, you fire and maneuver, or you will be fired and maneuvered upon. So, sort of that way with life. Um, just because I don't like change um, doesn't mean that you won't get left behind if you don't at least accept and understand and respect it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, of course, we have so much new stuff constantly coming out now, and, and it can be instantly spread throughout the marketplace. And there's almost this, it's not almost, there is a trend amongst the community that if you're not doing X, you're not doing Y, then you're just you're just irrelevant now. And, you know, a lot of that's equipment-based and stuff. And it's, it just, there was nothing in the triad about the equipment. I don't no, believe so. He had what's that? I don't oh, sure. so at all. Um, right. you know, and I it's one of those traps that you mm-hmm. can fall into very easily. With I have this, and this was the thing at the time. Um, I've, I've got different guns because I like different guns, not because I need them, you know. Right. Uh, someone with the caveat that the specific gun, because you can't just say that a generic gun is going to be okay. Just right. because most of them are doesn't mean your sample will be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, someone could do a lot worse than a Glock 19. Someone could do a lot worse than a SIG 365 or a 1911 Commander or whatever else you know even a smith and wesson model 10 or 12 uh snub nose k-frame revolver um all of those are are very capable serviceable defensive pistols they may not be the absolute best thing for frontline military or police duty but for concealed carry protecting yourself uh, home defense, things like that. And some of them would, you know, work well for frontline duty as well. Uh, but somebody could do a lot worse than that. You don't have to have X, Y, or Z. Uh, and then when you get a 
third generation Glock 19 that runs and runs and runs. And you've been shooting that and practicing that for years. Um, they come out with a fifth gen MOS model. You don't have to run out and go grab one of those and put an optic on there. And then when they come out with a direct milled one, you don't have to get that. Uh, if you want to, by all means, please do so, because that's, you know, you're right. And that's what one of the things that makes America great. But that's one of the traps. And I've fallen into that myself over the years of trying to hunt down the latest and greatest, you know, trying to inch out that extra little bit of performance. Um, when you do that, sometimes you go down that path that you're not getting the performance that you could have if you just would have continued to practice. Now, I'll bring up my friend Lester again as an example. Same gun same uh, holster, same dry fire and live fire practice regime for four decades. And there's not many people that can touch the man, you know, and this is a man that's been through six classes in his entire life. I think maybe he, he might've been through eight. He might've went through a couple with Clint Smith, but he just practiced what was preached to him, you know, and, uh, went on and on and on and on so uh combat triad marksmanship under marksmanship are the five elements of the modern technique of the pistol which are the weaver stance the flashlight picture the compressed surprise brake, the presentation and the heavy duty pistol which we all know is 1911 you can disagree but you'd be wrong uh principles of practical marksmanship are accuracy power and speed or dbc which is where the term DDC comes from, which is Latin. Um, then under gun handling, you have general safety procedures, manipulation, malfunction clearance, and tactical manipulation. And then under mindset is general awareness, principles of personal defense, the color code, and tactical procedures. So um, the only part in there, like you said, that mentions equipment is the last line of the last element of the modern technique, which is uh, heavy duty self-loading pistol. Um, so it gives brief mention to it, but it has to because that's part of the modern technique, but you see how everything else is much more important in there. But obviously you do have to have some type of firearm or equipment for marksmanship. But other than that, that's the combat triad published in the API manual. So, um, like most of the time, you're correct. Well, Shane, how can people get in touch with you if they, if they wanted to? Probably not. I'm real hard to get in touch with. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't do much other than talk to you. Uh, I don't post anywhere, and I don't, um, I'll occasionally teach a match or teach a class every second Saturday of the month uh, at Camp Sumter Sports Shooting Association in Andersonville, Georgia. Uh, I do a pistol match from nine to 12. And then after that, from one to three, I, I tend to do a very small uh, seminar type thing. Other than that, I'm too busy with my other jobs uh, to do much about that. But anybody that's in the area and wants to come shoot a match is more than welcome to. Um, the, uh, if they just Google Camp Sumter Sports Shooting Association Andersonville, it'll pop the website up. Um, but um, that's, that's about the extent of getting in touch with me. All right, Shane, thank you for joining in uh, tonight. And... Uh... 
I hope the audience enjoys you know, what you had to offer tonight. These, we have these conversations all the time, and pretty much the show is just the phone calls that I have with people, and just that they get to listen in on them. And uh, you and I get to chat quite a bit, and I appreciate the friendship. And, and uh, uh, you know, there is this thing called Ghost of Standard Time, and I appreciate you actually violating that principle and being on yes, time sir. tonight. I wasn't 15 yeah. minutes late. Yeah, and 15 minutes is usually I consider like not bad. <laughs> I try. For you, you're the only person I'm about on time for. Yeah. And uh, as I am continuing to hear uh, activity coming from the general direction of my neighbor's house, I'm going to get offline now and uh, perhaps see if I need to do something about that. Call which me. Will be calling, which will be calling someone that we pay to come deal with that problem. Yes, and, sir. Uh, well, for the audience, uh, thank you. I understand that your most important asset is your time. And should we have an episode next week, you'll know I got through this okay, whatever's going on out here. So thank you all. Thank you.